on this episode of Office Hours, Craig Siegel, Tim Story, Francis Wolf, Kevin Jones, and Brian DeMarco. What you make happen for someone else, God will make happen for you. What a great mindset. He's an inspiration to so many people that came from nothing. Really what you do in the community is more important than talking about what you do. Writers are becoming podcasters this decade. That is mind-blowing. The throwing off the saddle and saying, yes, I can. David Meltzer hosts Office Hours. I'm David Meltzer, and I have the host with the most, especially this guy here, Jason Waller, Power Home Solar CEO and the True Underdog Podcast. If you haven't listened to it, you're missing out. Check it out. It's one of the best podcasts in the world. Of course, Media Abundance's co-founder, Mike Mamola, author, speaker, entrepreneur, and influencer of many, David Marino, sports agent, partner at Brown Rudnick, and also an extraordinary speaker. Welcome, you guys. Thank you so much for all of your help, because we know it's the questions you ask that make Office Hours the best show here, late night entrepreneurial show that we have. I can't wait for our first guest here on Office Hours. Our first guest is Craig Siegel, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, mindset coach, and breakthrough manufacturer. Craig. Welcome to Office Hours. Thank you so much for having me. You have my word. We're going to manufacture magic together here today. I'm big fans of all of you. Let's do this. Yes, <laughs> let's do this. You have the best attitude of anyone that I'm working with. I'm blessed to mentor you and help you, but your mission truly is to empower others, to empower others. You're one of my magical Meltzer 1000. What helped you to make that transition from Wall Street, 10 years on Wall Street, making a ton of money, to walk away from it to help other people. You know, it's simple, Dave. When the pandemic happened, not to sound too spiritual and too cliche, but it provided me an opportunity, a window that I haven't had in 10 years to kind of reassess. And it also told me just how unpredictable life is. Quite frankly, I didn't love the direction I was heading. I didn't want to wake up another six months now doing what I was doing. Yeah, making money is fantastic, but at some point, you have to be happy. You want to do what sets your soul on fire. And so when I had that minute, when I closed down my office at the beginning of the pandemic, I put myself in that frequency, Dave, and I know you love to talk about higher frequencies. And I said to myself, what do I love? What is my passion? And the truth of the matter is, is I've always been obsessed with personal development, studying the mind, neuro-linguistic programming, NLP and so forth, how to reprogram the mindset. And then it occurred to me, what if it's not only my passion, what if it's actually my purpose? Simply put, the next day on a run in Central Park, I pulled over, I bought the domain to cultivate lastingsymphony.com. Although I probably didn't have to rush for that. I don't think anyone was jonesing <laughs> for that name. It was a play on my initial CLS. And simply put, I put together a three-year vision, just like Walt Disney did the same tools that he did when he started Disneyland. I wanted to be the face of personal development. I wanted to revamp billions of mindsets. Not for Craig Siegel, not for an ego thing, I just wanted to share my gifts with the world and help people revamp their mindsets. Everyone would agree that, that the pandemic provided people with an opportunity to at least reflect on their lives. And there are a lot of people that are doing what they don't want to do. So you had that moment, that aha moment that so many people have. What was it that gave you the courage? Because that's the leap of faith. That's getting past that fear. That's fear is the biggest dream killer that stops so many. What was it that put you past that fear that allowed you to get to where you are today? Sadly, I think most people here on the planet are not doing what they love to do. 
And so ultimately, this is going to sound really deep, but I had to make it very real for myself, guys. I put myself in a scenario. I thought, if this was it for me, and my funeral was in a couple of weeks, what would people really say about me? Sure, I had some special relationships and I touched some lives, but did I really put a dent in the universe? And the answer was no, I didn't. I felt like I was underachieving and I wasn't sharing my gifts with the world and thus I was being selfish. And so I made it so that now that I had this big idea, because that's what it takes is a vision idea, to not take a shot or a swing at that, to keep going down a path, doing something that didn't let light my soul on fire, I associated that with death. I made it that real for me. And then now that I had the idea of putting together a strategy and attacking it, so to speak, and trying to help people make it dent in the universe, that I associated pleasure to. So all everyone listening right now, and I know we're on TV and there's gonna be so many people watching this, this is the value I wanna give you. If you're not doing something that you love to do and you do have idea, remove the fear and doubt. Look yourself in the mirror and say three words. Why not you? You are worthy. Because if it's not you, it's gonna be someone else. And we all deserve to live the life we desire. You know, Craig, I'm glad you talked on uh, doing things that you love to do. Because I know for a fact, you've achieved success in things I know you didn't love to do. For example, there was a time when you couldn't run a mile without stopping. And then within the next year, you ran four marathons, right? And I don't know if you decided that you changed your mindset, that you just love running. And I'm not a big believer in motivation because motivation is temporary, but there had to be a mindset shift where you said, you know what, I'm gonna be the best marathon runner there is, even though right now I can't run a mile. Talk to us about that journey in your mind and what sort of tools you use to achieve those four marathons and, uh, and, and beyond. Yeah, so I thought you'd never ask, right? And you guys are <laughs> gonna laugh at this one. So ultimately, before I decided to launch Cultivate Lasting Symphony or CLS, I was in a transition season in my life where I had all this built up energy. And Dave, as you can attest to, I don't have to ask anything. I want to go all in, but I didn't know what the idea was. And I came across running and I ran one mile and I'd always lifted weights my whole life. That was my outlet, but never cardio, so to speak. And I was humbled with the fact that running one mile challenged me and I was tired. Then I realized, was it really me that was tired or was it my perception of effort? The very next day I ran two miles much easier, so to speak. And I realized just like life, running is a metaphor, assuming you're able physically to put one foot in front of the other, it's that voice in the head that we have to combat, that we have to beat, so to speak. And so again, I don't have too much moderation. So I signed up for the New York City Marathon. I ran that a few months later, and then that led to four marathons that very same year in 2019. But the bottom line is the voice in your head, it plays tricks on all of us. And I've had some of the greatest runners on the planet, Olympians on the podcast. They also agree. Even they get the voice in your head, typically around mile 18 to 20. Here's some tools how to combat that. Number one, we all have the ability to control the volume of the voice in our head. It doesn't have to sound so scary. We can actually lower the volume. This one you might laugh at, but it's very effective. The voice in our head, it doesn't have to sound like Darth Vader, so to speak. We can replace the tonality with one Bugs Bunny. Then all of a sudden, that voice in our head isn't so scary and we can kind of control it, so to speak. And so to come full circle and answer your question, I was fascinated how running, even though new to me, and I'm not afraid to be a beginner, it was such a metaphor because once I understood I could reprogram and control the voice in my head, there's nothing that I can't accomplish. And that's exactly why we're training right now for Chicago in October. Craig, awesome. Let me ask you about goal setting. You know, you transitioned your life from Wall Street to go out and empower people and you got a podcast that's booming and you're running marathons. 
you have to have goals to get there. I'm a big believer that there's no elevator in life, you have to take the steps. Walk us through how you set your goals and how you get the wins that you need to keep pushing forward. Goal setting is so important, but also like you have to celebrate the small wins. And let me be clear, this is something that I'm learning right now. It's a journey life. So in order to have goals, like you have to have a vision. It has to be a big moonshot. So when I thought of CLS, so to speak, I wanted it to be the face of personal development, even bigger than Tony Robbins, so to speak. Not for me, no, no ego thing. I just wanted to help revamp as many mindsets as I possibly could. And so when I reverse engineered it, I came in with the critic perspective and I started to challenge myself. Well, Craig, how's it gonna work? You have all these obstacles. Who's gonna listen to you? What are your testimonials, so to speak? I came in with the third perspective as the realist. I said, wait a minute. I did start two businesses from the ground up with no experience, they figure juggernauts. I did go from not being able to run a mile to conquer four marathons that year. So I can do this stuff. So then from there, very simply, it was milestones. A tribute to Dave, I like to have milestones, small wins on our way to the big journey, so to speak. And so, and Jay, just to answer your question, goals are so important for everybody. Simply put, it gives us purpose. You know, in mentoring you and working with you and being on the paradigm shift, I've noticed, um, that you're a little obsessive. And I mean that as a compliment. Just a little bit. How have you found to regulate and to hone in the compulsive behavior that you have to the positive aspect because you're not getting the results you want as fast as you can, I know as your mentor and a mentor to so many compulsive people, and you don't see the negative results of some negative things that you may be compulsive about. Again, phenomenal question. And Jay and Dave, I know you have these types of personalities, birds of a feather. That's where we hang out all the time. And look, the bottom line is this, and this might sound a little deep, but it's real. Obsessions are healthy, as long as they're the right obsessions. Because when you have a compulsive or an obsession, or you're that goal oriented, it shows desire. It shows enthusiasm, for lack of better words. The people that don't have that compulsiveness, that obsession, they can never really get past a certain point. Eating too much or drinking too much, those are unhealthy obsessions. Working out a lot, being obsessed with, being present for your family, helping people like you are, Dave, north of a billion people, so to speak, these are healthy obsessions. But again, bottom line is as follows. Obsession shows that you're enthusiastic about something, and that's key. Just make sure you choose the healthy obsessions. That's exactly what you do, Craig Siegel. You gotta check out, he's the host of the CLS Experience. Check us out on Saturdays, The Paradigm Shift, an incredible mindset coach to help you get to those milestones. We should call him a milestone, not a mindset coach, a milestone, milestone coach. coach. Yeah. That's Craig Siegel. He's going to shock the world. Thank you for joining us on Office Hours. Thank you, Craig. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Craig. Love but, you guys. Chat soon. Thank you. Yeah, every time I see this guy, energy is contagious. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just from his the energy he brings, he doesn't have to say anything. Just seeing him there, propped up, smiling, is inspiring. I don't even have to hear what he's going to say. So he's half the way there and inspiring people just from the energy he brings. Then he adds on top of it the content and the credibility and the words that match the energy he brings. It's very inspirational. Yeah, it's incredibly inspirational to build on what you just said, Dave. It's not just that energy. Once he does dive into the content, it's analogous and similar to what you see in all of these successful people. They're willing to challenge those limiting beliefs. No, you can't. No, you shouldn't. Those things that are wired into our DNA to protect us, to keep us safe. The people that are really doing things, and like he said, making a dent in the world, they're throwing off the saddle and saying, yes, I can. Let me give this a shot. And that's what I love about that guy. Small wins. You know, he, yeah. he said, that's what it's about. He understands that you have to have small wins to celebrate, that you don't have to chase some crazy high goal. You know, it, it, and he exuberates high energy, 
motivation, ready to go. I, I think that that's a yeah. good trait to have, and I think he's on to a fantastic career doing, doing that. Next up, we've got Tim Story, acclaimed author, speaker, and life coach. Welcome back to Office Hours with David Meltzer, and I have a friend, but he's really a mentor. He's one of the best speakers I've ever listened to, an extraordinary author and a life coach. Tim Story, welcome to Office Hours. What a privilege, and uh, how could I be one of the best speakers when I think you're the best speaker? So. <laughs> yeah, comparison is a thief of joy, so uh, together we're better, and I know that. And, you know, I read your book, Miracle Mentality, and the reason I love to read a book like that is that it's not what we say, it's what we hear. And even when we think we have a deeper understanding of creativity, manifestation, mindset, all the things that you may portray yourself as understanding and helping and empowering others, I love to see other people's perspective of the same ideas and their own uh, experience with those ideas. And it just accelerates my learning and also my humility that I have so much more to learn. When you were writing Miracle Mentality, who were some of the people that you utilized, some of the ideas and lessons that you used to build on to create such an exceptional portrayal of how we can manifest or create things, miracles in our lives? You know, David, it's a lot of how you teach, you know, that we primarily learn through education, observation and conversation and if you think about my life as a kid compton california seven people in a, a two-bedroom apartment there, there's no way that i could see myself fast forwarding that one day i would be working with videl sassoon and hanging out with people like walter Matthau and jack lemon and that those would be people that i would end up coaching caring for you know, being around Lee Iacocca for 27 years, being mentored by Quincy Jones for over 30 years, David, I didn't see it. And, but my third grade teacher saw something in me, my fourth grade teacher, fifth grade teacher, but as my sixth grade teacher that kept me after class and said, Timmy's story, I wanna tell you something. I wanna see if you wanna read one of my personal books out of my library, because I think you're brilliant. This Caucasian man said to a young kid from Compton, I think you're brilliant, but the key is I didn't push it away. I just took what he said and labeled myself. So Tim, I'm a big fan. Uh, I also recently wrote my first book and I'm getting into speaking engagements, trying to learn from Dave as well. He's mentoring me. But what would you say to somebody like myself or other people out there that have a lot of information to give out to people, to try to inspire them? What tips would you give them to speak to people, to make sure that they're touching them and, and inspiring them the correct way? I think the key is that when, when you're going to speak on a subject, you have to have the subject so deep in you that it comes out of your pores. So before I do a 30 minute talk, I'm telling you the truth, guys, I put 10 hours of research. So if I'm teaching on turning your setbacks to comebacks, I only got 30 minutes to let it come out of my pores. And I, re I remember I was speaking with Ed Milet at a conference um, in Las Vegas. And this one guy said to me, did you just hypnotize us? And I said, kind of, <laughs> because it's so in me, the revelation is so in me after 10 hours that I'm just dropping it. Yeah. And I think it's the same as like the way Jordan played basketball is that he was so saturated 
in what he could do because he practiced so hard that when he got on the court, he just manifested it. So I think the key is to know your subject so well, whatever the subject is, put that many hours into it and let it come right out of your pores. I absolutely love that. Hi, Tim. And I think, you know, I speak for all of us, I'm sure, huge fans. Um, when you talk about that, when that teacher handed you that book, there's an old adage, which you know, it's when, when the student is ready, the teacher arrives. And, and that happened. How do we prepare ourselves? And yours was that ability to accept it, to say, this is it. And we know that positive or negative reinforcement changes a person's life. It, it, it typically sends them in a trajectory or a direction that they might not otherwise go. How can we prepare ourselves so that when that opportunity arrives, we're able to grab onto it and ride it? I think it goes back to um, something that all of our friend has said, and that is Les Brown. And when Les Brown talks about being hungry, he understands because of the way he was raised, his plight. You're either running from something or you're running to something. A lot of us from the inner city that make it, man, we were running from something. We were getting our ass kicked. And, you know, we didn't have enough money. We were lower income. It didn't feel good. My father died when I was 10. You guys, I had no other choice. I had no other choice. And so I was running from something. I did not want to be a discount version of myself. And that's why when I began to meet the Oprah Winfrey's, the Steve Harvey's, they saw it because game knows game. And they were like, what do you need? You're one of us. I respect that and appreciate that so much. And, you know, a uh, similar background from, from New York City. You know, I think Einstein once said that you can't solve your problems with the same mindset that was used to create them. And I think if talking about yes. background and upbringing, I want to talk a little bit about mindset because I know you talk a lot about it in your book. You've got this mindset assessment. I want you to explain to us what the mindset assessment is. I would say this on the on the mindset, as we all know, mindset is where you set your mind. It's your point of view. So all of us can go to the same party and let's say there's a hundred people there. All five of us could come back with a different opinion of that party, depending on who we talked to the whole night. If we were talking to somebody pleasant, pleasing and uplifting, you know, David will come back and say, man, that was a great party. I'd come back and say, that was a great party. But if the other guys, if you guys were with some negative people, then they just messed up your experience. <laughs> so you're at the wrong party. What happens? <laughs> right. So what happened with me is I saw like a lot of relatives and people that had the wrong mindset and I just needed to remove myself from that. And I began to study this, that people live usually in these categories, the mundane, which is the regular the status quo, just the mundane, same old, same old. The messy, which is the disheveled. Then the third is the madness. A lot of people that I deal with that come from a lot of pain, they lived in the madness. It's hard to have a miracle mindset when you are in the middle of the environment of the madness. So I teach in my book, Miracle Mentality, how to make room for miracles to come in your life, that you have to master the mundane. And you know, I know, I know Dave, he wakes up super early. You guys do too, I'm sure. I'm up super early. Every day I'm hustling. I'm straight out of Compton, guys. <laughs> I, I can't I can't do things regular. I'm I'm just I'm still just 
Somebody said, are you still running from something? I said, probably. <laughs> yeah, so I don't want to be mundane. I don't want to be messy. And I don't want to be in the madness. I want to be in that magical miracle place. Part of the magical miracle place is allowing things, Tim, to come through you. And I think part of the journey when we're running to what we want and we start understanding what we've learned and how to do things, we start trying to transfer that knowledge or what I call appreciate it, meaning add our value to it and give it away like you have in miracle mentality. And then there's a whole nother realm of people listening or hearing what we're saying. As I stated by reading your book, I wanted to hear what you were saying to understand what you were listening or, or what you wanted people to listen for. Planting seeds is almost equally as important as the one or two people that immediately are ready. They're ready. Oh my gosh, Dave Meltzer called me brilliant. I'm going to change my whole life. And you and I get those messages every once in a while and it changes our day. How do we stay the course when it feels as if nobody hears me, nobody's listening to me? You know, Jason's book may come out and be a bestseller, or it may just be a few years till someone picks it up and it goes viral, which we see all the time. How do we stay the course and know that we're on the right track if we're not getting those responses of, hey, you changed my life? This is what sets you apart, David Meltzer, because we, we all know a lot of the same people, is that you are very, very patient and you are a master seed planner. You're always painted forward. You're always doing things for all of us. And, and I really believe this saying that what you make happen for someone else, God will make happen for you. When you are a seed planner, as you guys know, I teach this in my book, you gotta plow the ground, then you gotta plant the right seed. Now, that was very important what I just said. You gotta plant the right seed. You guys, I've been in pain and still planted the right seed. I've been lost and still planted the right seed. I've been poor and still planted the right seed. You gotta plow, you gotta plant, but the right seed, then you gotta water the seed, which is repetition, and then that harvest comes. But the beautiful things about life, guys, as we all know, is sometimes the very harvest you expect over here is not the one that pops up first. It's the one that pops up over here. And that's the beauty of this thing called Earth. Tim, I, I just wanted to follow up when you're talking about that seed. You, it's, it's so important as you're doing that activity, whatever it is, right, to plant that seed. But then when you go on to the next one, to plant that next seed, right, so that you do have this whole harvest because not all, all of them will grow. Is that how you coach individuals? 100%. And as, as all of you guys know, a lot of it is what is the motive? I don't always plant seed because I know I'm going to get something back. I plant seed just because I care. Like it could be a mother that calls me and says, my 15 year old son is addicted uh, to, to drugs or alcohol. Can you help him out? The answer is yes. All those seeds I planted with the right motives, they came back in, an, in a harvest that I could never even imagine could happen to me. Thank you for coming and joining us on Office Hour. It's been an honor and a pleasure, and I look for our next time we get together as well. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate all you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What a great mindset. I, it's mindset is everything. We give meaning to everything we see, and the mindset is the controls in which we see with, and he articulates himself just in a way that resonates with me. It's a frequency. You know, there's certain people that you're on that frequency with, and uh, Tim's story is on that frequency. Selfishly, I wanted to ask about speaking, but I think everybody out there can understand when you're sharing a story, you're inspiring somebody, you're empowering somebody, you're trying to help somebody. 
they're gonna wanna feel that passion. That is a lesson just in life, not just speaking. And so I thought that was really cool how he brought that out. Yeah, and like he said, you know, giving with no expectation of return is extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. The universe, you cannot fathom how much you'll be rewarded by doing that. And those are the seeds he's planting, whether it's helping with addiction or helping with a job or helping whatever it is, to get that back, not knowing when or where or how, just to do for the sake of good. And, and ultimately you benefit from it. That's, that's how all of this works. Hearing his story about how he grew up in Compton and knowing that every step of the way he's had to be perfect to be where he is. And now he's even said it, he said, I'm still running. I don't even know what I'm running from. The fact that he's an inspiration to so many people that came from nothing, that you can turn yourself into something by changing your mindset and being around the right people. Our next guest is Francis Wolf, CEO and co-founder at Digistore 24 Inc. Welcome to Office Hours, Francis. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. You know, your space is growing so quickly in e-commerce, and having a platform like yours may take a lifetime to figure out all the nuances of how best to utilize it to build revenue for companies, but yet your success is paramount. It's unmatched by anyone. What's been the secret sauce of creating an e-commerce platform that actually provides and does what it says it's gonna do, which is creates greater revenues for companies utilizing it. Well, I think the most important thing is to have a great tech team. Um, Digistore is founded on 10 years of development and we have a tech team of over 60 people uh, working full time on the software. So just having a stable technology is the first thing that you need to really scale a platform. The second is you need customers and um, you know we've grown significantly in the US over the last year or so. Um, and we're really excited uh, you know, to keep growing in the US. Where did Digistore start and have the same strategies overseas worked here in the US? Are you taking a different marketing strategy to grow your brand here? Um, Digistore was founded in 2012. Uh, so you know, we've had time to refine the technology, uh, but really it's based on American you know, marketing technology. So we, you know, it was kind of refined in Germany brought back to the US and we've been growing the business um, you know, really quickly because we have so many vendors that are used to um, scaling on platforms similar to ours. You know, Francis is not only one of the most capable CEOs, he's also one of the most modest. So he says, we've experienced some growth at Digistore in the, in the last year or so. And correct me if I'm wrong, Francis, but I think, you know, under your leadership, Digistore has gone from approximately a million dollars a month to $20 million a month or so. And, and with that kind of growth, even relying on technology, what is it specifically that you find that works? Because that's a big increase in congratulations. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, you know, it's, it's been one, you know, heck of a ride. Uh, especially with COVID in 2020. But I'd say one, you know, the biggest things that we did was to build a really great sales team uh, full of like industry, uh, you know, kind of leaders in their field. And, you know, we have a really amazing VP of sales that just helped grow our, our sales team from, you know, like one person uh, 2019 to about 15 people. So that's been, you know, one of our biggest keys to our growth in the US market. Francis. You're going to give Amazon a run for its money, I'm thinking, right? Is that the plan? That's the plan. That's the plan. I mean, plan. <laughs> I'm just trying to get Digistore. I, I, I'm trying to get Digistore out there to, you know, everybody um, so that they, you know, know that we have an amazing technology that you can really scale an online business from, you know, 50K a month to 
500k to 5 million a month without switching platforms. It's one step at a time. I mean, you just, you, now you're doing 20 million a month and that's what it takes as a real entrepreneur and a business builder to go out and do that. How important is culture for your team? Like, what are you doing as a leader to build the best culture so you guys can continue to scale and grow the way you have? I think it's really important early on to have a great HR team. Um, you know, that was one thing that really saved me a lot of time as a CEO. Um, but, you know, when you have a really great uh, HR team that can identify the right people, the right fit, the right cultural fit, um, it really makes the biggest difference. I have one more quick question for you, Francis, because you are doing such a great job. What is it that you've been able to do to, to build on Jason's question for your customers to lower that barrier of entry so that they can come on, get their products on you so seamlessly and get it out there to the world? Well, Digistore just takes a margin on each sale. So we provide our whole platform, payment processing, sales tax, marketing automation, uh, you know, different affiliate uh, sales, um, you know, and a whole marketplace technology for, you know, basically for free. And, you know, only when other people do sales, do we make money on that? And that, you know, our margin also includes the payment processing fees. So it's really easy to come in as a new entrepreneur and scale your business. As a lawyer and an agent, I see a lot of brands and logos and company names come across my desk and half the time I have no idea what the company does, what they are, what they're about. I don't know what the 24 stands for, I'm assuming it's 24 hours, but there's something to be said about being called Digistore24 because just looking at the words, you can kind of look at it and say, okay, I know what these guys do, what they're about. Tell us about the thought process in naming the company Digistore24 and am I correct in that the 24 refers to 24 hours in a day? Yeah, it refers to 24 hours in a day. Um, you know, we, we like the Digistore brand, but Digistore 24 just kind of rhymes. And that's one of the reasons why I was really attracted to Digistore in the first place, you know, because I wasn't one of the original founders, but I did bring the company to the US. And I just, I think our brand is, is very strong and I, other companies recognize that. Um, and it's, you know, it's been really important for us in our growth because, you know, we have so many different features and relationships that we deal with to have a fully automated, you know, e-commerce direct response platform. And when we, you know, when our partners recognize our brand, it just helps us get partnerships and things done a lot quicker. That's why I'm launching my new brand, Meltzer Seltzer. It's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> it's the kosher seltzer. We can all enjoy it together. What a great business. What a great success story. Most companies in your space found it difficult to expand, grow, and accelerate. You're able to create a platform growing 20 times the business throughout the pandemic. What an incredible story. What an incredible executive team you must have. Francis Wolf, thank you so much for joining us here on Office Hours. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Francis. Thank you, Francis. Glad to be. You know, look, it's, it's, you either lean into the future and become part of it or lean into the past and become part of it. And mm -hmm. It's clear, right? Technology is the future. They're, that's where they're at. Anybody who's not doing that should really rethink it. So uh, congratulations to them. They're doing it right. Yeah, and I think they were, they were primed for success when they came from Germany to the States. They had a proven business model. They're already using techno marketing technology that has been applied here in the States before, and they've been able to capitalize on the pandemic where a lot of things shifted and amplified all digital business assets. You've heard some amazing guests this episode. Now let's hear the takeaway of the day from Jason Waller, host of the True Underdog Podcast. I'm Jason Waller with your takeaway of the day. My biggest takeaway for today deals with something we all know very well, failure. 
We've all failed in our lives, but extracting lessons from those failures is the key. When we fail, we get the most valuable data possible, and it is up to us to adapt and make the changes to do better. I'm excited to hear from our next guest, Kevin Jones, founder and CEO of Blue Wire Media. Kevin Jones, welcome to Office Hours. Dave, thanks for having me, man. Can't wait to chop it up with you and the crew here. Yeah, you know, I want to start with the evolution of, of podcasting because about four and a half years ago, I went to the Super Bowl and met this guy, Gary Vaynerchuk, who convinced me to start a digital brand on my own, to start branding myself. And the first step he said is, man, you're, you're perfect for a podcast. And here I am, you know, 850 some episodes later and with the biggest names in sports and entertainment and now trying to pick the right partner to take that podcast to the next level i couldn't believe how many networks were out there and i can't believe how many podcasts were out there as well how do you stand out with all the people who are overselling back-end selling and you know promoting things that they may or may not have as a podcast network. Yeah, I think it's been very challenging to stand out for sure. Uh, one thing for us is is just uh, the youth of our platform, man. Uh, sports radio has really been an industry that has not embraced the youth movement. So, you know, I think we position ourselves with brands. We position, I position myself with talent as. I'm not a boss who's going to be meeting with you and yelling at you all the time. I'm trying to work with you. So, you know, I think sports media, uh, it generally has been yet to be full time with your content. We've created a, an atmosphere where you can bring your content to us. And, uh, you know, so trying to create that outlet, man, you know, we've been pretty brand safe. Uh, you know, the ringer and barstool are arguably not brand safe and you know more power to them for speaking their minds but we we think you can talk sports and entertainment in a way that uh, they're not throwing mud either um, and those guys are both very successful there's many ways to skin the cat so i think for us it's been brand safe it's been youth um and it's just been audio is, is been our big focus kevin i uh, i'm somewhat of a new podcaster i'm not four and a half years in like this guy but i'm about 15 months in 150 episodes i recently made the top three Entrepreneur and motivational podcast. I passed our boy Gary V. So sorry, Gary. But you know, I, I started this on my own on the side, and then I hired a company that does a great job, and I use a, a platform. But I know I'm missing the boat. You know, I know people like David and other people are, are hiring companies like yours. What makes your product, your relationship with the with the talent, different? than other people out there. Yeah, I think we we do quarterly reviews with the podcasters. We we and we also text with them too. It's kind of like the you know, you got to live both worlds there. You got to make it more formal but also keep it informal with the talent. I I think I do have a unique skill set of just having been in sports media for 10 years before this. I have 18,000 Twitter followers in the blue check mark, so we look for a prototype similar to that. For us, we make original content too, so we have a lot going on for the brand. We have the Vegas thing too. We're trying to build um, tent poles around Blue Wire beyond audio where people can bring their content to Vegas. They can we have an NFL draft thing. So, you know, trying to get as big as possible to in sports and entertainment for people to feel like, oh, okay, I'm here for a reason. It's not just the ad sales. It's not just the label. There's other opportunities coming. I'm making more money. Most people are. It's a relationships thing for me. And I'm sure it was for David too, when he first founded his big business. It's it's truly that. And 
now everyone has content and trying to build the relationships around content to content. Kevin, and this goes off of what Jason's question was. I thought he was going to go in a little bit different of a direction uh, before he asked about relationships. But so many podcasts out there now. What makes, if you had to boil it down to a few essential things, if you could, what makes a good podcast when you're at the end of the day to decide which ones you're going to go with? Consistency. You know, you, you have to record on the same day and time is the first thing. If you don't do that, it's game over. Yeah. We tell people to pick a niche generally. If you're talking all sports or, or trying to be Bill Simmons, it's pretty difficult. So we've helped people who talk about a specific thing join that community. You're going to have a lot of downs uh, and, you know, be willing to go through those. No one's really going to listen at first outside of your core friends, even if you're famous. Like, like David, uh, you know, anyone who starts... You're, you're likely not going to jump out of the cannon. Uh, you're going to have to figure out little ways to do that. And Kevin, you're, you, congrats on all the success, uh, first off, but you are really uniquely situated to answer this question. I think we all see such tremendous growth in podcast space. And like Dave said, there are millions of podcasts. Of those millions of podcasts, there are probably you know, a couple million sports-specific podcasts. And <laughs> it has become kind of saturated. And everyone, and, and to be colloquial, everybody in their mama wants to do a podcast, right? What are some of the spaces that you've seen? What are some of the niches that haven't been filled yet so that we can start to guide folks into spaces where maybe they're not you know, overly saturated? Are, are there still spaces like that? And, and what are they? You know, sports and comedy has not been done correctly yet of, of, of mixing those two together. And that's something we're actively trying. Um, we're, we're big fans of storytelling, which requires bigger investment. We've worked with Grant Wall and we're working with um, Sean, you from The Ringer, working with different people there. Uh, he's telling the Anthony Kim story. Grant Wall told the uh, Freddie Adu story. So for us, it requires bigger investment. But we're looking at storytelling as being super underdeveloped in sports podcasting. And uh, writers are becoming podcasters this decade is our guess. I used to get so excited when I got Sports Illustrated. I would run to the mailbox every Thursday. Who's on the cover? What is that story? And I'm trying to recreate that feeling, hopefully, when I reach scale here. So this is Blue Wire specific. I know you're asking, okay, even an athlete, an influencer, when they start, you got to be authentic. You can't just be like, I'm going to do a Yankees podcast because they they're the biggest team. What have you been tweeting about? What What, what is your passion? Um, so that'll be kind of the first identifier. Maybe what I should have said before consistency is like, you got to show up and be authentic. If you're not the expert, if you're not comfortable talking about the subject, it's a no-go for the audience. They're going to be able to tell right away. Blue Wire, remember it because 10 years from now, it's going to be incredible when you see one everywhere, airports, shopping malls, stadiums. I can see it already. A lot of content and a lot of great content inspiring and aspirational sports and entertainment. Kevin, thank you for your vision. Thank you for all the hard work and congratulations, most importantly. And I am so excited to work with you. So thank you personally for accepting me on your network. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Can't wait to see you guys in Vegas and appreciate the time and the platform here, David. We're gonna have studios everywhere. That, that could have been the best news. That is mind blowing. Awesome. I love it. Yeah, for me, it actually made me reflect on the success of, of just the podcast industry. It's, it's, it's taken over, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone has got a podcast. There's so many niche podcasts. And I think about the tech boom and it, the, the dot-com boom that you are part of, Dave. And you think about chat rooms, right? And it, the, all these interest chat rooms. And this is what it is in the modern era. You get like-minded people to hear what they want to hear. So I can start a podcast right now, say Detroit Lions Super Bowl, and Jason Wall is my first subscriber. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's what Kevin said. You know, it's the same thing that makes a podcast successful that makes a person successful in life authenticity 
right? And I think that's, Dave, what makes your podcast so successful. That's what makes Blue Wire so successful. They can identify that. Like you say, the truth vibrates the fastest, and that authenticity shines the brightest. So congratulations to them. I think it's really exciting. Great vision. Let's go to this week's Executive Spotlight. Each week, we'll be interviewing the top entrepreneurs and executives, sharing their personal playbook to success and the lessons they've learned along the way. Brian DeMarco. Though Brian DeMarco began his career in advertising, working with brands like Panasonic and Canon, his real passion was food and beverage. He'd eventually take leadership roles at companies like Anheuser-Busch, as well as McCann Erickson Worldwide, where he managed Budweiser, Stella Artois, Bacardi, and Martini and Rossi. As his palate refined, he found himself at two intersections of food and media, the Food Network, and host of a weekly heritage radio talk show on wine and politics. After decades of working in New York, he founded Barter House and subsequently his legacy project, Harlem Standard. Following Barter House's inclusive, lucrative model, Harlem Standard projects significant success. Today's executive spotlight is a company that I've actually invested in. I am so excited about because I can't believe Brian DeMarco somehow got the rights to the brand Harlem Standard. How the heck did you get a brand Harlem Standard? Well, it, it's funny you would ask that because we were thinking about, I, first of all, I live in Harlem and my family's in Harlem and my uh, daughter goes to school in Harlem. I was thinking about Brooklyn as a brand and the way that Brooklyn travels around the globe and people perceive it as this, they probably think it's Manhattan, but, um, and I thought Harlem as a brand was even stronger, but we thought about it and I thought this is an amazing story to tell about the Harlem Renaissance and my personal history with that. And then having the standard be kind of like the standard hotel. So putting these together, it's like the original standard of how you want to live your life, how you want to you know, perceive alcohol, but not as necessarily a way or, or a medium to get buzzed or high, but as a way to relax, take a beat. So if you think about what Harlem means globally, it's music, it's, it's culture. I'd say from the 20s through about 1968. You know, if you wanted to go out at night, you went up to Harlem. If you were of a, a stoner or a beat generation, you went to Greenwich Village. If you lived on Park Avenue and had money, you went to Harlem to go to speakeasies and clubs. And so while that may have been some gentrification of that neighborhood, what we've done in, in, in the abstract is so now we have LGBT community, we have three black investors, two female investors, and two gay investors. We, we've really been focusing lately on, 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 I think, where the power base is in the world right now, which is black women. And so what, I, what we figured out is that it's really important to be authentic, but really what you do in the community is more important than talking about what you do. You know, you've been in the industry a long time, so this isn't a new industry for you. You've been right. very successful in the wine business and other beverages as well. You also know the process of trusting and vetting people. Everybody gets excited about this brand, right. but we also have to vet those people because a lot of times people just talk and uh, there's no substantive business or quantitative value behind that. In the alcohol business specifically, right. there's a lot of hype. What do you do to, number one, stay away from that type of over-exaggeration, over-manipulation, mm -hmm. overselling, and also keep your own integrity as far as not overselling and over-promoting? Because it's really easy to over-promote this brand. Yes. And you've taken your time really been cautious about the influencers that lined up 
that want to be a part of the brand right. and making sure that they do represent an equity uh, that exists today in right. Harlem and more importantly, the lifestyle that you want to represent for Harlem. How have you utilized your process of making sure the right people are in this deal? This is uh, unscripted plug for you, but <laughs> this patience part of it is, is something I'm trying to come to grips with because you know when you live in Manhattan, I've been there my entire adult life, you think about like action and, and, and your intention of like saying something, then doing something, and then actually achieving those goals, usually it's, it's in a rapid, rapid fire. And so patience is not something that I have a great deal of, but I've learned to have it because when we have something that was successful, now people are lining up to be part of it. And, and, and one of the things that actually you taught me was this idea of saying no, and that has been very powerful. The idea that people are throwing themselves at it. Initially, it couldn't get arrested. And then, then, it's, then it's popular, and everyone's like, oh, I want to be part of it. Are you looking for investors? We're like, of course we are, but not you. Yeah. <laughs> not you right at this moment. But, and, so, and people don't like to hear no. They can't believe it when you tell them no. So it's a very powerful tool. And patience is also very powerful in the sense that we waited um, through the pandemic. And what we were able to do was go back and make more whiskey and make two new SKUs, which is we'll talk about in a minute. These were um, projects that were, were, were unavailable to us or most people until we were like, we put our, our stamp on the world, we went out there. Then when we started to source, you know, liquid, when I mean like whiskey and bourbon and rye and grain and corn, we were getting the best stuff because people wanted to support us. Stuff that other people weren't able to get or they had to pay a premium for. So our suppliers really came in for us and they wanted to see us succeed. You know, we were paying, there was nothing free, but it was like, oh, how did you get that 10 year old whiskey or the seven year old whiskey when we made this whiskey? You're a year old company, how do you have seven year old whiskey? Well, I have good friends. Getting to the story though, right? right. It's a fabulous story. I was hoping you could share that story about Harlem Standard sure. and, and the lesson that you learned from it so far. My uncles may or may not have been involved in bootlegging Spoken like a true Italian. In the 20s. Um, <laughs> and all the booze coming into the country was coming from Canada. And it was mostly through Buffalo and Watertown. And they would come down and they would bring it to Harlem. At that time, the reservoir had the cleanest water. It still does. The pipes were new. They would take a case of whiskey, dump it in a bathtub, run the water, put a bag of sugar in, stir it up, re-bottle re it, put the cork back in, half turn of black wax, and basically make 30% more booze, put it back in the cases and ship it off to various places. So when we, and I thought about the Harlem standard, it's the first cut, it's the uncut version of this. It would be no surprise to you if I told you that we don't filter our whiskey and our, our base whiskey starts at 90 proof. So there's this argument among like whiskey heads about where you would have to filter or not filter, but Technically, it's uh, 89.763, which is just geeky, but so it's 90 proof. Yeah. So below 90 proof, you would have to do two things. One would be charcoal filtering or potentially chill filtering. So Jack and Jim have these that charcoal note where you're like thinking about Keith Richards or Rolling Stones. It's like, why is this whiskey taste like this? Well, that's really not the whiskey you're tasting. You're tasting charcoal filtering. And then the higher-end brands, the Pappies, the Woodford Reserves, those are chill filtered. And that's a very expensive process and a very good process, but it does strip the whiskey of, of, of some of its flavor. And so when we use the non-GMO corn, um, you know, some of that Indiana corn, which is perfect, 
and you know we blend and do our bottling in Kentucky technically. I wanted to have the, the purest expression of what we were doing. So the Harlem standard to me, it, it kind of just all came together. It, it was just a true story that was, you know, higher proof is in. Our philosophy is not to filter, to give you the first first cut, first impression. And then the standard, this idea of the, the standard hotel, the, st the standard of something, American standard, is th is that we are, we're, it's not just a, um, an urbane spirit. It's it's a, a multicultural experience, but it's about music. It's about the night. We own the night. We own music. We own jazz. So having these these platforms of of really this base of like what the brand stands for is something that most people would beg to have. You can't make this shit up. And so this is really, I think, a, a good uh, moment in time that we have to focus on this uh, target. Well, I also love that the sales keep coming as well. Yes, and, uh, fantastic. The stories I hear keep on coming all to the betterment of the company. You're doing an incredible job, which is not surprising to me because I bet on the jockey. Brian DeMarco, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Founder of Harlem Standard. We'll see how big this gets here on Office Hours. Now, a quick word from our JA Impact honoree partner, presented by Screwball Peanut Butter Whiskey. Junior Achievement Worldwide prepares young people for employment and entrepreneurship, delivering hands-on experiential learning and work readiness, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. The recipient of the JA Impact honoree is selected based on their mission-driven values and have the opportunity to align with Junior Achievement Worldwide through their 100 million plus alumni network driving awareness to their brand through junior achievements millions of entrepreneurs looking to make an impact on the world I'm Steve Yang co-founders of Screwball Whiskey today junior achievement honoree is someone who is dedicated to elevating others and giving them the tools to see the miracles in the world Tim's story is one of the world's most inspirational people and his passion for helping others shine through in everything that he does thanks Tim for being a source of light for all of us. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Office Hours. And a special thank you to our featured co-hosts and guests for joining today's episode. See you next week on Office Hours.